Hello, everybody, and welcome to Right Care at Baptist. I'm your host, Jake Lancaster, here with Henry Sullivan. Today, we'll be talking to you about palliative medicine and COVID-19. Today, we have Dr. Greg Mullinax and Brett Snodgrass here to talk a little bit about palliative care and COVID-19. Greg, can you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your clinical background? Sure. I have experience in family medicine and uh, actually practiced full-scope family medicine for about 14 years um, here in Memphis and worked for a community health center and did full-scope family medicine with OB and got into palliative medicine actually through some of the work that uh, I was doing with infants that were born preterm and having discussions uh, about uh, prolonged hospital stays and met the first palliative medicine doctor I'd ever met since I didn't really have any exposure in med school uh, in the NICU and went on and did a fellowship here uh, in Memphis and then joined Baptist in 2017 to help lead the the service here. And I'm currently the director of palliative medicine uh, here at Baptist. Great, glad to have you on. Brett, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, yeah, so I'm Brett Snodgrass. I'm a family nurse practitioner. I've been a registered nurse for 23 years. I've been a nurse practitioner for 13. Uh, much of that has been in family practice and then some in hospice and pain management. And now I'm clinical coordinator here at Baptist um, for our palliative medicine program. Great, glad to have you. Henry, now that you are well-rested, having gone to the beach, can you just give us a little bit of what you want to talk about? I appreciate it, Jake and, and Greg and Brett. I, I appreciate you guys taking time out of your busy day to, to meet with us today and talk about this. This has certainly been an interesting 14, 16 weeks of, of life uh, in COVID-19. COVID-19 presents, I think, an unusual challenge for us with vulnerable populations being infected by this virus and then posing a rather rapid rapid transition for them to an end-of-life state. Greg, have you been involved in any of the uh, palliative care end-of-life discussions uh, involved in COVID-19? Sure. I think um, we've been involved in quite a few since this whole pandemic started, and, and we've really had to, to morph how we've had those conversations. I, I think the the typical, if there is such a thing as typical uh, palliative medicine patient is one that has high acuity, has potentially a life-limiting serious illness, and so one of the challenges that we've seen in dealing with these patients with COVID-19 is that uh, some patients do get better and, and others have that precipitous decline uh, and don't. And it's hard sometimes to predict on the front end who that would be. So there's a lot of prognostic uncertainty. And so it's been helpful, I believe, for us to be involved with the team and in the care of some of these patients to help kind of guide the process and then to reach out to families when patients aren't able to discuss things for themselves. To me, the most challenging part of end-of-life discussions come with the patient who has uh, an infectious disease uh, as a component that is uh, shortening life expectancy because it is so unpredictable. Has that been your experience with COVID-19 or, or has it been something different? No, I, I think to some degree, the, the patients who are, of course, at highest risk for uh, higher mortality rates are patients who already have comorbidities. So these would be patients that have already been maybe uh, struggling with 
end-stage renal disease, diabetes, patients certainly who have any other pulmonary condition such as cancer or have completed treatment for cancer and have maybe uh, radiation fibrosis, just other risk factors. So uh, to some degree, the patients that have struggled the most with the infection would be patients that the palliative medicine team may have already dealt with in the past or could have dealt with had we, you know, had we been there involved in their care. So there is a degree where it's new. And uh, on the flip of that, to some degree, there's still kind of bread and butter palliative medicine discussions that we're having based on their other diagnoses. To that point, maybe we should take a step back and just define palliative care. I think we are all very familiar with it, but there may be some that are listening to this that um, may still have some questions. So could you give just a general overview of palliative medicine and maybe how it is different from hospice? Sure. You know, palliative medicine as a medical specialty is focused on quality of life and on uh, improving that for patients and reducing suffering. And by definition, it's a multi-specialty approach. That's what makes a palliative uh, consult a little bit different from maybe other consults in that it entails not only a physician, but we bring in chaplains, uh, licensed clinical social workers, nurses, nurse practitioners, so that we can assist the patient physically with symptoms, but also mentally and spiritually addressing the, the whole person. And not only would we address those things with the patients, but we try to face that with families as well that are walking through the, the illness experience. And so kind of our, our routine consultation in the hospital, at least, would be for complex symptoms management or for addressing complex medical decisions. Great. And Brett, I know you've had a lot of experience with hospice in the past. Can you give us just your understanding and your experience with how hospice is different than palliative care? Sure. And I always think of hospice as being under the umbrella of palliative medicine. So truly palliative medicine begins, it can begin as early as diagnosis of a serious and life-limiting illness, whereas hospice is by definition at six months or less of life. So we're truly talking about end of life. And truly to be appropriate for hospice, you have to meet certain criteria and diagnoses and things to be appropriate um, in that point. So again, many of our patients kind of morph into a hospice patient, but not all do. And, and you know, when they do it and, and if they're going to do it, you know, depends. But when we're looking at hospice, we're truly thinking of end of life you know, six months or less to live. So, Brett, let me ask you the question then, given that the patient with comorbid conditions that, that just as Greg outlined, may be dealing with a significant day-to-day -day illness, uh, and now they are in the hospital with COVID-19. What's been your experience dealing with a lot of end-of-life discussions then? Because it, it may be that this is a time when someone who's been under palliative care now becomes more of a hospice consideration. Have you been involved in any of the management of COVID-19 patients? Yes, we've been involved with so many of them. And what we've seen is, right, these patients already have kind of a palliative understanding. And it is a devastating diagnosis to add in COVID-19 to this conversation. It's been interesting and, and something we've all learned to deal with in that, you know, as palliative providers, we are face-to-face -face with families, we're face-to-face -face with patients, 
Um, we may touch patients and hold hands and hug and things along that line. And COVID-19 has completely changed that environment. At one point early on in this epidemic, we noticed that really our numbers were slightly less, but we also noticed that the acuity was greatly increased. And we were even busier because every conversation had to be by telephone. We had to telephone into the patient um, because we were all trying to maintain less access but yet we wanted to take the same amount of care and give the same quality care. So it really brought a different um, environment into palliative medicine as well as every other specialty trying to appropriately care for these patients. And it, families were no longer coming and going to the hospital. Now they couldn't come, or if they could come, they could only come briefly. Or if they also were exposed or positive, you know, then they couldn't have any access to the families. So having these conversations really changed and looked very differently um, than they once did when we had a simple palliative, if there's such a thing as a palliative patient, having these conversations. So we noticed that with the care of these patients removed from palliative and hospice services that the telemedicine platform or the, the as you described, the, the visits that are removed from the bedside change dramatically. So you've seen that occur for your specialties as well? Yeah, and, and Brett pipe in too. We had to morph rather quickly at the front end of, of when the pandemics began to really change things in early March. What we noticed was that a lot of the patients we would be consulted on had already reached a point where their breathlessness was so severe that they were on face mask ventilation, cognition sometimes was compromised, and then uh, in many of the patients they were already intubated. That made communication, you know, even more of a challenge. And with the severe dyspnea that a lot of the patients were having, they were being medicated with higher dosages of medicines than we normally have to use. So they weren't able to have those conversations. So we switched into a mode where we were doing many of our conversations by video, by phone, trying to also connect families into patients by video, since it's so important to kind of see your loved one if you're not able to come to the hospital. And we not only had to adapt, but we had to come up with protocols to teach you know, patients at home who maybe even had less of a comfort level with Zoom and some of these other platforms how to you know put that onto their their phone or their iPad so that we could connect them. So very early on, we had to become adept at using these different media of conversation. And most communication models, you know, you talk about the participants and then you talk about the the message and then you talk about the environment. And we were seeing, you know, the change not only in the environment, but in the media that you then had to use and that affected the messaging. To me, that's fascinating, Greg and, and Brett Bush. You had, to, you had to adapt so quickly, as did, as did everybody else at the bedside and be removed, you had to deliver care. What my limited appreciation of, of the services you provide is, is that so much of it's what I would call a long conversation. Uh, that, that does require time and uh, a level of comfort with the family or the patient. Tell me some of the lessons you learned in this process. What are some of the takeaways? Well, I, I think we had like some big picture and then some 
nitty gritty. The, you know, so much like, like you said, 70% of communication is nonverbal. So we're used to sitting down to let, uh, you know, families and patients know that we're going to listen to them. We position ourselves in the room. We can see emotional responses. So through, you know, phone and video, we had to assume sometimes that emotional responses were present and give them time to unfold. Something that was more just nitty gritty on something like Zoom, if the normal cues that you were to give a a patient that you're listening, where we sometimes say, "Uh uh-huh, or yes, you know, just assent, that cuts into the video feed. And so early on when we had multiple people on a conversation and we were trying to agree and assent, it uh, actually fragmented the communication and we had to learn to, you know, kind of wait until the end of things that were said and then use different, you know, modes of showing the, uh, the family members that, uh, that we were listening to them. I think we also took old maps for communication and then had to kind of just beef them up because it's more difficult to have a longer conversation over the telephone. And yet the subject matter was sometimes even weightier. So using specific tools to kind of get to the the point rapidly, but in a compassionate way is something that we've been trying to hone uh, down and uh, and work on in an ongoing fashion, you know, as this has unfolded. So that's some of the things that we've really been working on. Brett, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I think personally, and, and as we saw our staff, I mean, it's flexibility. We had to be, and every, every provider has been flexible and had to be flexible. And I think we had to say what we didn't know because we, we've changed how we treated the patients. You know, early on, they talked about no steroids and no NSAIDs. And so everybody shied away from that and did some, you know, and how we've, the treatments evolved. And so, you know, family was hearing from us saying, this is what we're going to try, but we've learned so much about the disease. And in the interim, we had to prepare families for a changing dynamic because, again, there was so much we didn't know early on, so much we still don't even know um, with antibody testing. So I think we've had to always change our message appropriately, but as we get the information, we're changing our message. So we've been flexible. And I think the other thing we really learned was how important it is that we care for our staff members. I mean, we have staff members that might be immunocompromised and things. So how do we allow them to continue to do their job, the job they love, but that, but then to be an effective caregiver um, in, in this environment? So we really learned flexibility and in and, and this ever-changing environment. That's a really good point. Greg, could you talk a little bit about your strategy for how to go about the consults for these patients, given that they're so complex and given that the environment has changed so much, what are the things that you really need to have in place before you go see that patient? What are the things you're you're gathering and the information you're gra- gathering and looking at? You know, um, th- there's two things. We really had to retrofit things just for phone conversations, just the, the media of it. And uh, I was gonna add this bef- before we talk about sometimes mapping the conversation. One thing that I did learn is when we called patients to take a second, a little bit longer on the introduction and say things like uh, your loved ones, there's been no critical change because everyone's heart skips a beat whenever you get a call from the uh, from the hospital. And temporarily, if I didn't add in, there's been no sudden change. I'm just calling to give you an update. Are you at a place where I can talk to you? 
just the phone call itself put people into an emotional state of mind where they may not hear anything I say for the next two minutes until they figure out, okay, there's been no sudden change. So um, it's streamlined our conversations to simply add that level kind of, uh, of introduction to what we were saying and acknowledging that there were time constraints and that the media was imperfect. Families kind of waited by the phone all day long, almost like you're waiting in a much lesser sense for the cable guy to come from, you know, 12 to, to 6 p.m. You've got this long stretch of time and you're you worry about, can I go outside? <laughs> can I eat something? Can I can I get some groceries? Because you're always by the phone. So we began to set times that were definitive that we would call so that families could expect they would uh, that there would be an update at this moment. And it relieved kind of their stress level exponentially just to, to know that there would be a check-in time and to expect that call. But in terms of the conversations themselves, we, we use in palliative medicine something called cognitive mapping, where the analogy that I've used with uh, residents or, or, or fellows is to plan out the goal of the conversation, knowing that that may change in the course of the conversation. But coming from kind of the family medicine OB world, I use the analogy of a C-section. It's, you know, a, a surgery that's done repeatedly and it has pretty straightforward goals. You've, you start with a pregnant mom and at the end, you've got to have a delivered baby and, and uh, the mom's abdomen closed. And so it's, it's straightforward, but there are so many situations that uh, make the surgery different. So there can be repeat surgeries. It could be an elective. It could be in the face of like preeclampsia or help syndrome. It's a crash or it's failure to progress. And so you approach those surgeries differently, although the endpoints are the same. So we approach a lot of our conversations in that same manner where we have a straightforward set of uh, almost like a roadmap that we want to progress through, but give ourselves grace to change based on what the, the families are, are saying. And these tools are, are not something we invented. Um, I wanted to make sure that everybody hears that there are multiple sites that can help train non-palliative physicians on how to use some of these cognitive maps. CAPC Center for Advancement of Palliative Care is one of those sites, as well as something called Vital Talks. And CAPC used to be a, a website that charged membership, you know, to access its resources. And during the, the pandemic, they've opened it wide up for uh, people to use their resources free of charge. One of the main things we had to learn is to frame our conversations in the viewpoint, uh, such as what Brett mentioned, we were offering patients limited timed trials of some of the treatments because the treatments were changing. And if recommendations shifted, you can sometimes lose the confidence of the family when a treatment one day is different the next. And when a recommendation has changed and their loved one received this treatment and now it's no longer recommended, so if we framed it from we're going to do a limited time trial of ICU care and our current recommendations of you know steroids or convalescent plasma, then that gave us the freedom to discuss changes as they arose and also gave us freedom to discuss when treatments were no longer being effective if we were going to transition to comfort-focused goals uh, and sometimes you know uh, more palliative interventions instead of ongoing curative interventions. Thank you so much for that. Um, one of the questions I have, and this has come up recently, is there's a, a belief out there, which I'm finding to be true, that the average age of the patients we're admitting now is significantly younger than they were maybe two, 
weeks ago or a month ago or more and that the demographics of what we're seeing now is slightly different. Have you all noticed that? How have you adapted your practice to deal with that shift in demographics? Sure, I, I think we've certainly noticed that. And one of the things that maybe has skewed us seeing that sooner than even the media was reporting this you know, shift uh, is the, the excellent services that we can give through ECMO here at the hospital. So those are our you know, patients that are critically ill, of course, um, with COVID and may need total bypass, you know, in, in a very general fashion to describe it, you know, of, of heart and lungs uh, in order to support them uh, for a time of healing. And so we, we're seeing young patients come in for that type of intervention. But one of the things that we do see is that the younger patients, they have, you know, different outcomes than the 80 or 90 year olds from the nursing home. They still become critically ill. They may require the ventilator support for longer uh, than some of the other patients. And so it, it really sets a situation up where we do a limited trial and then we let the patient's body kind of determine for us our next goals of care, depending on how they respond to the treatments. But we prepare families for the fact that this is a, a marathon that they're embarking on and it will take time to recover. And then it's constantly resetting goals based on how the family would define quality of life and what that begins to unfold, whether patients are recovering and then having neurologic complications from we've had a fair number of patients who have totally recovered from well, totally is a strong word who have recovered from the virus well enough to be out of the ICU and on the floor only to suffer sometimes hypercoagulable events and, and strokes. And um, so how does that then restructure the conversation and what their life looks like? So it's an ongoing conversation, especially with the younger patients on to what baseline they recover to, but still the work to recover, you know, uh, and we're along for the ride. Henry, do you want to give some closing comments or, or wrap up? No, I, I really do appreciate both Brett and Greg coming on today and, and just sharing your insight into not only the, the work you do on a daily basis with palliative care and, and hospice care, but the turn that COVID-19 has posed on your services and, and how you've been able to adapt to a very dynamic change in patient status and also the population that, 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 you're, that you're serving. So I really appreciate you guys coming on with us today and, and helping to share this with, with all those who are listening. Yes, thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you everybody for listening to this week's Right Care Baptist. Please remember to check the show notes and follow the link to the CME survey to get credit for this episode. Thank you, and we will hear back from you next week. Thank you so much, Jake. We appreciate it.